2: This is the John
3: sang Podcast. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. And welcome to Progress After Dark here on Channel 127. Hey, uh, uh, a grateful thank you as always to Dino Badala and his excellent team for doing such a great show. And all the shows on Progress that I get to follow and bring it all home to bedtime. For the next three hours, we're going to bring you a very packed show because today there's quite a bit to talk about. Chris Houseelt, our executive producer out of South Carolina. Thea Harper's producing the show out of Brooklyn. We have a lot of good friends tonight. Bob Seska uh, returns to the show to talk about the world of politics, which... uh, I, I just don't even know what to tell you, folks. I think it's manageable. I think it's going to be okay. But my God, it just keeps getting more and more insane. We'll also be joined by Gina Kraus vilmar later in the show to talk about what Biden is trying to do for asylum seekers. And we're going to be talking a lot about, well, the big stories of the day. Um, hello to everyone who listens live, our evil army of the night. You guys, we'd love to hear from you. There's a lot that happened. Everyone who listens um, on demand on the app or on the John Sang podcast. We love our day walkers. You're always welcome to call in, too, if you're around a phone in the evening sometime or write us on our show's Facebook page or through Twitter. And uh, we love to read your comments and questions and jokes and threats on the air. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of overwhelmed by the day, friends, so please bear with me. Uh, let's get to it. We are 68 days from Donald Trump's civil fraud Suit for the Trump Organization. We are 173 days from the next E. Jean Carroll defamation suit. We are 187 days from the Pyramid Scheme class action suit against Donald Trump. We are 243 days from the New York State hush money suit beginning under Alvin Bragg. We are 299 days from the start of the classified documents that were stolen trial. And we're 355 days until the next Republican National Convention. Let's get to it. It's been an insane day. I hope you're okay. When, when the day started, I I woke up thinking, you know, it's, it's going to be a good one, no matter what, because it's, it's, it's Mick Jagger's 80th birthday. I know that's not as big a date as, say, Keith Richards' 80th birthday, because the fact that so many people never made it to 70 and Keith is going to make it to 80, well... Kind of makes you question a lot of things they taught you as a youth, doesn't it? But Mick Jagger is the greatest shaman in rock and roll. There is no one who can do what he does. And he shows what incredible drive, incredible talent, and incredible discipline for working out, and incredible wealth can do well into your 80s. he He's a shaman. That's all there is to it. And God bless him. And, and we had planned on playing a lot of Mick Jagger music tonight. Some... Stones and even a lot of his solo stuff cuz his solo stuff is very underrated. We're we're not going to play any Mick Jagger stuff tonight. Also, the news every 5 minutes it kept getting crazier because today was the house hearings about unidentified anomalous phenomena or unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs, that's what UFOs now identify as. During the hearings today, representatives of your government told us that UFOs are real. They're pretty common sightings in the military and amongst commercial pilots. And the government may actually have in its possession an alien aircraft, and maybe, maybe even its pilots. Normally, this would be the biggest story of the day. Um, It hasn't really exploded yet the way I thought it would. I think it will by the end of the week. I just want to play you a little bit of this. This is UAP whistleblower David Grush telling Representative Mike Garcia of California about the existence of aircraft of unknown origin that the U.S. has. Thank you. My last question.
1: And, so, and sometimes you, I know that some, you have also said some of these answers in the past, but we're trying to get them on the public record as well, which is really important. Mr. Gresh, finally, do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Uh, absolutely, based on interviewing uh, over 40 witnesses over four years. And, and, and where? I know the exact locations and, and those locations were provided to the inspector general and some of which to the intelligence committees. I actually had the people with the first hand knowledge provide a protected disclosure to the inspector general.
3: Yeah. Right. Kind of crazy. And again, they they invited him here to give this testimony. But here's the part that's going to really grab you. Here's the part that I couldn't believe and I actually had to play it back several times over the course of the day. I actually played this clip for other people to make sure I wasn't imagining what I heard. It's still very difficult for me to imagine how this isn't leading everything. But here is Congresswoman Nancy Mace uh, pushing Mr. Grush even further, having him reiterate his previous media claims that the U.S. has not only uh, unidentified aircraft, but non-human physical specimens as well.
4: You've stated that the government is in possession of potentially non-human spacecraft. Based on your experience and extensive conversations with experts, do you believe our government has made contact with intelligent extraterrestrials?
1: Something I can't discuss in public setting.
4: Um, Okay, I can't ask when you think this occurred. (laughs) Um, If you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft?
3: That's retired Major David Grush, who said the U.S. government has been taking part in a multi-decade UAP, that's UFO, crash retrieval and reverse engineering program. We're going to go deeper on this tonight as well. Also, uh, Hunter Biden was supposed to plead guilty today. Hmm? He, was, he He was supposed to. Instead, he pled not guilty to tax evasion and ATF charges in a Delaware court after his plea deal with federal prosecutors fell apart. It's very, very sticky and ugly. Uh, We're going to go deep on it and uh, tell you exactly who's full of crap. Um, It's not Hunter Biden. He came to plead guilty today. And then also the Mitch McConnell episode, which ordinarily would be the biggest story of the day as well. Now, you probably heard about it. Maybe you haven't seen the footage. The footage we're going to play for you doesn't really do it justice. But um, at the start of his weekly press conference, Senator McConnell, who is, I believe, 81, he trailed off, and you sort of have to watch this to really appreciate it, but just give a listen. When it begins, the Republicans around him, John Thune's right behind him, they're all very jocular, and McConnell begins to speak and then trails off and stares silently into space until some of the Republican lawmakers lean in to check and see if he's okay.
2: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, We're on a path
5: to finishing the NDA uh, this week. It's been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of
2: Okay, Mitch. Anything else you want to say? I'm sure. Let's go back to your it. Do you want to say anything else to the press?
3: Go ahead, John. Let's go back to you. Go ahead, John. Right? I mean, the senator, the leader of the Republicans seconds. in the Senate. What, Chris? 20 seconds of silence. And, and, it, and it took almost that long for the Republicans around him to realize he had stopped talking. The video is remarkable because gradually their, their smiles leave. He, he suffered this apparent medical episode right after it began. They led him away from the podium. And he, here's my thing. Everyone's saying, well, he had TIA, which I'd never heard of before today. Transient ischemic attack. I don't I'd never heard of TIA, but I, I know a thing or two about stroke. And stroke was trending nationwide today. And in the name of God, not a fan of Mitch McConnell, but Jesus people, why wasn't he taken immediately to the hospital as soon as this happened? Because Senator John Barrasso was standing two feet away from him. If you watch the video and he's a doctor, he's an actual MD. This doctor, who's a senator, observed the leader exhibiting symptoms of a, a, a stroke or a transient ischemic attack. And instead of seeking medical attention right away, they took him out. And about 20 minutes later, they sent Mitch McConnell back out to assure the folks everything was fine. So towards the end of the event, Mitch McConnell returned. But as you'll hear here, he refuses to give Manu Raju of CNN a clear answer on what exactly just happened at the start of this press conference.
2: Could you address what happened here at the start of the press conference
1: and was related to your injury from earlier this year where you suffered a concussion? Is that no, i fine. You fine. you're fully able to yeah. do your job? Or-
3: yeah. So we don't know what's going on with Mitch McConnell. But again, um, I hope he's OK. You know, I, I didn't see a lot of liberals cheering this and I hope we don't see any because that's the difference, friends. I didn't see any Democrats or liberals being mean or cruel because mr mcconnell was having a health problem and they shouldn't be and he deserves everyone's prayers and best wishes if you don't believe in prayers but i'm trying to think of republicans who didn't make a joke about nancy pelosi's husband getting his head bashed in with a hammer you understand what i'm saying also um before the main story because the day just kept getting more powerful and more disturbing and More confusing. Um, It's White Supremacist Wednesday. We'll go through all this tonight. But, uh, wow. First off, Rudy Giuliani admitted to a court that he lied about two African-American female Georgia election workers. (laughs) He admitted it was all lies. And as we've discussed on this show extensively, those claims led to an endless array of death threats and abuse for both mother and daughter. As Rudy flipped... Um, also, in racist news for White Supremacist Wednesday, Jason Aldean still denies the video for his song Try That in a Small Town is in any way racially problematic, but his label just cut the Black Lives Matter protest footage out of the official video. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also that Ohio police officer who was recorded on body camera releasing his police dog on a black truck driver who had his hands up and was unarmed after he was pulled over has been fired. Which is great until you realize he'll probably get hired by another precinct. He'll most likely never be put on trial for this crime. And he's probably still going to keep his pension. Let's get to the story that, um, you know, you you might not be someone who grew up in the 80s and 90s. You might not be someone for whom this music has any resonance. You might not be someone who cares about the artist. And that's that's OK. But her family announced the death in a statement today, according to the BBC and, and RTE in Ireland. It is with great sadness that we announce the passing of our beloved Sinead. Her family and friends are devastated... ...and I've requested privacy at this very difficult time. And that's it. Sinead O'Connor has left us at age 56. No other details were provided as to the cause of death. One of the greatest Irish poets alive has left us today. One of the greatest Irish singer-songwriters alive has left us. An artist who, for three-plus decades was ferociously honest about her activism her sexuality her politics her trauma in her past her mental health struggles and her ongoing evolving spiritual journey and you know these idiots talk about cancel culture like it's a thing you know anyone accusing anyone of cancel culture look at Sinead O'Connor one of the few legitimate artists to actually be cancelled because she called out sexual assault In the Catholic Church one of the most magnetic performers I've ever seen on stage live and I saw Shanae O'Connor on stage a lot a lot of folks only know her from 1990 with her cover of Prince's nothing compares to you and it's an incredible performance it's an incredible video a great recording shattering I saw her do it live many many times and and by all means give her all the credit praise her for that song but Over the course of her career, she released 10 studio albums, and you're listening to a guy who bought every single one. I mean, I bought everything she ever put out. I was a fan who stayed a fan. The first one, The Lion and the Cobra... 36 years ago is still one of the best albums of the 80s, and it sounds incredible today. Incredible. If you listen to nothing else by Sinead O'Connor, but the album The Lion and the Cobra, you'll understand why so many of us in the 80s were blown away by this artist. My my, my girlfriend—my girlfriend's a big radio person, and back in, in, in when I was a teenager and dating her, I wasn't a radio person. She was, but she got me into this Irish artist I'd never heard of. And that was it. I mean, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got was her follow-up album, which had the Prince cover. Am I Not Your Girl is her album of standards produced by Phil Ramon. It's just stunning. Her version of Secret Love with the horn section will make you wish you saw her do a big band tour. Universal Mother is her most underrated record from 1994. That's got the cover of Nirvana's All Apologies. Faith and Courage, which has a song called Hold Back the Night that I think is the last song of the 80s. Uh, Sean Nos Nua was traditional Irish songs in 2002. In 2003, she released She Who Dwells in the Secret Place of the Most High Shall Abide Under the Shadow of the Almighty. That's the album title. Uh, it was a two-disc set. The first CD had a lot of rare tracks. She had recorded as B-sides or for soundtrack records or duets with other people. And the second disc was a live concert. I listened to that many times, driving cross-country that year. In 2005, she released her reggae album, Throw Down Your Arms by Sly and Robbie. It's terrific. She covers Buju Bantan, theology came out in 2007 that was her album of christian spiritual music uh more recently in the last decade or so how about i be me and you be you and i'm not bossy i'm the boss were two pop albums of hers now no one's going to talk about her records they're going to talk about how she tore up a picture of pope john paul ii on saturday night live to protest the church's massive conspiracy to obstruct justice and cover up child rape and she put herself out there before anyone else And there are very few artists who are willing to take the risks she took and to pay the price she paid, including getting booed off stage at the Bob Dylan Tribute Show in 1992, the 30th anniversary concert. And I was there. I saw it and I met her beforehand. But first, Tori Amos said today, Sinead was a force of nature, a brilliant songwriter and performer whose talent we will not see the like of again. Such passion. Such intense presence and a beautiful soul who battled her own personal demons courageously. Be at peace, dear Sinead, you will forever be in our hearts. Friend of the show, Tori Amos. Chuck D. of Public Enemy said, rest in beats and power, Sinead O'Connor, who always brought the noise. She was an icon to so many people, including the queer community, and especially the Irish queer community. She was an advocate for trans rights. (laughs) She was an advocate for LGBT rights in the 80s, when that wasn't hip. And the first time I saw her live, I had taken a final exam, gone back to my dorm room. My two friends from Long Island came in with my kid brother. We went uptown to see the Beacon Theater to see Sinead O'Connor. And it was stunning. She closed with an acoustic version of the song, Troy. This is when she was still bald. I was at the Garden State Arts Center show in New Jersey when she wouldn't come on stage because she didn't want them playing the national anthem before her performance. We had just had the Persian Gulf War, the first one, where we restored the dictator of Kuwait, and Sinead didn't want, you know, someone from Ireland didn't want a song about bombs bursting in air before her performance. We're sitting around wondering, Jesus, why, why, why it's 10 o'clock, why hasn't the concert started yet? It was really her first great controversy in public. That was long before tearing up the picture of the Pope. I saw her do Damn Your Eyes at Jones Beach. I saw her at the FLA Festival back in the late 90s with Van Morrison and Shane McGowan I saw Sinead O'Connor open for the Chieftains In L.A. as an opening act For traditional Irish folk music And she was amazing I put her song in this heart on my wedding album And I was at the Dylan show Which happened a week after She tore up the Pope's picture On Saturday Night Live and said Fight the real enemy And I had a backstage pass I had scammed that And I was in a green room or something And I, I, I met her And it's the only time I ever met her I never interviewed her. I always tried to have her when I was at vh one I've tried to get her on this show for years. I've tried every time. When her memoir came out, I tried so hard to get her on this show. But I only met her once, and we talked for only five minutes. And she was painfully shy, and I don't think she knew why the hell I was bothering her, but I wanted her to know my background, that I came from clergy, that I came from a very Catholic background. And I thanked her. I just said I wanted to thank her for what she did. Because what she did wasn't anti-church, wasn't anti-pope, wasn't anti-Catholic. It wasn't anti-Jesus or anti-God or anti-Christian. It was anti-covering up child rape. She went on stage and they booed her. She was supposed to sing Bob's Born Again song, "I, I Believe in You. And they booed her horribly. A bunch of people who I don't think were very devout Christians. And were there to celebrate the greatest protest singer of all time booing a woman for an act of protest. By the way, thousands of people in Madison Square Garden were cheering her that night. I've always said if she had started the song, the crowd would have let her finish and it would have been beautiful. And when she was done, it was Chris Christopherson who came on stage and you can watch the clip because he's picked up on Mike and he hugs her. She's weeping. She just screams Bob Marley lyrics and leaves and Chris Christopherson hugs her and just says, don't let the bastards get you down. I never forgot that moment. In 1999, she was ordained as a priest by the Latin Tridentine Church, which is a sect that's not recognized by mainstream Catholic Church, but they ordain women. She consistently spoke out about child abuse, human rights, racism, organized religion, women's rights. In 2017, she changed her name to Magda Davit. And then in 2018, she changed her name to Shahuda Sadakat after converting to Islam. But she continued to record and perform under her birth name. A lot of mainstream media outlets are kind of erasing her Muslim identity Cat Stevens tweeted that sad to hear of the passing of sister Shahuda Sadakat, also known as Sinead O'Connor. She was a tender soul. May God most merciful grant her everlasting peace. We belong to God and verily to him we do return. And she was a great Muslim, by the way. I mean, she didn't fuck around. She said nobody with any sanity, including myself, would have anything but sympathy for the Palestinian plight. There's not a sane person on earth who is in any way sanctions the, f- the f- what the fuck the Israeli authorities are doing. She hasn't recorded music in a while. She did have an album she was developing during pandemic time that was supposed to come out in 2022. There have been rumors it's coming out next year, but she's been busy. Her memoir, Rememberings, was released in June 2021, got great reviews, one of the books of the year for the BBC, and then in January of last year, her son Shane died at the age of 17, and that was when she canceled her tour and canceled her album indefinitely which we now know would have been her final tour. And I want to, I just, I want to tell you one other reason. I I love the music and I love the activism, but um, as someone who's done his time in the rooms paying someone for 50 minutes to work stuff out, as someone who as a young person did the dance with all manner of therapist and all manner of antidepressant, there's not a lot of artists and famous people who will put their struggle with mental illness so out in public. Even, even if it hurts them professionally In 2007 on Oprah She said she had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder she had attempted suicide And then later on Oprah She said she got second opinions that she wasn't bipolar She was diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder And border- borderline personality disorder She had to undergo a hysterectomy Not too long ago And she went to rehab She was agoraphobic Six years ago, she put up a video on Facebook, a 12-minute video, where she had lost custody of her son and said she wanted to kill herself. And all the headlines were, of course, about her mental illness, and all the so-called Catholics couldn't stop sneering at her. She went on Dr. Phil and talked all about it, said she wanted to destigmatize mental illness. And the same people who booed her at the Bob Dylan tribute show mocked her when she came public about her struggles with mental illness. When her son died, she put a bunch of tweets that said she was going to kill herself. She was hospitalized. She said she was lesbian. She later took that back and said she was three quarters heterosexual, a quarter gay. But here's the deal. She shouted the truth. She screamed the truth. And... She was fearless about it. She was fearless about her own flaws. I don't know any artist who puts it out there like this, and it would have been tragic if she hadn't been putting out excellent music all along and excellent covers and excellent songs for movies and one-offs. She has been eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for over a decade. They don't deserve her. She's never been nominated. They're terrified of her. And, and again, she was proven right about everything. I'll say that again. Proven right about everything. They asked her, about ripping up the picture of John Paul in an interview and asked her, has this defined your career? And I want to quote her. She said, yes, it's defined my career in a beautiful fucking way. There was no doubt about who this bitch is. There was no more mistaking this woman for a pop star, but it was not derailing. People say, oh, you fucked up your career, but they're talking about the career they had in mind for me. I fucked up the house in Antigua that the record company dudes wanted to buy. I fucked up their career, not mine. It meant I had to make my living playing live. And I am born for live performance. She tore up a picture. The church I was raised in tore up lives. Her protest of John Paul's consistent denial of the church's complicity in child rape and covering up child rape was completely justified. She was right. And the people who sneered at her for decades were wrong. And some of them are still sneering at her. Some of these deep, Deep, devout Christians can't stop pissing on her grave today because she had the crime of telling the truth and being proven right about it. My friends, there are people who are still more angry that Sinead O'Connor tore up a picture of John Paul than they're angry at John Paul for covering up child rape. My fellow Catholic, Sinead O'Connor doesn't need your forgiveness. She deserves your thanks. And from some of you, she deserves your apology. We are at 866-997-4748. We've got to hit a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls and our friend Bob Seska. This is progress.
6: i
8: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
3: I got to say, I thought it was a good idea to get a haircut. My nephew's coming to stay. I thought I got a free hour. Let me get because my hair's still pandemic long. I got three inches cut off. And and I just realized with these glasses and the humidity, I now look like Fran Lebowitz. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fugles. I look like if if Nick Cave and Fran Lebowitz decided to just become one person, that's what I look like right now. Hey, uh, but I'm not complaining because I get to spend some time with you and the great Bob Seska. He is one of the best podcasters in the politics game, host of the Bob Seska Show. Maybe you fell in love with his columns at Salon and uh, the, the Daily Banter. Maybe you fell in love with him classing up the Stephanie Miller show and God knows that show needs it. Uh, I'm in love with him every time he opens his damn mouth. Welcome back the great Bob Sesker, everyone. Uh, thanks so much,
7: John. I'm sorry about Sinead O'Connor. I know you're a gigantic fan and uh, so, just so young. I mean, that's what was the most shocking about it today and uh, seeing yeah. that news come down. And, and I noticed uh, our friend Frank Conniff's tweet about this. About the Saturday Night Live debacle, yeah, yeah, and how, yeah, they had to ban her from Saturday Night Live or ban her from NBC. Yep,
3: and, it, and the band at the same held. time
7: making, yeah, making way for Donald Trump to become
3: a host exactly. of Saturday Night it's Live. Disgusting. It's the, and and yeah. SNL owes her an apology. The Catholic Church owes her an apology. Most yeah. right wing pundits owe her an apology. <laughs> and and you know, I just what what makes me sad, Bob. Like, I texted my brother about this because when I was in college, I took my brother to our first in eight show at the Beacon back in 1990. And, and yeah. my brother was just like, my brother's a therapist now. And he just says, I, I hope her suffering is, is done. Mm-hmm. And she's someone who suffered deeply and publicly. But um, I'm just sad because she's never going to get to have the comeback. You know, yeah. she's never going to get to have the comeback tour, the single, and a movie soundtrack that turns new listeners on to her. She's never going to get to come back and ha- be proven right and have people love her. She, Rick Astley, got more of a comeback than Sinead O'Connor did. So yeah, yeah that, I'm sad about that. But now, now I hope a lot of people discover the music, and God knows, there's a lot of great music she put out over the years. Yeah, the upside
7: is the music lives on, and you're exactly right. I think a lot of people, sadly because of her death, now are going to discover what she was really all about. I mean, I think there was a caricature and she was a punchline for many, many years because she had a shaved head and that was, ha, 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 look at that singer. She's got a shaved head. Isn't that funny? And it was the fodder for late night comics and and all the rest of it. Oh, I know. And failing to realize the body of work that she produced, Uh, you know, beyond all of the nonsense, there was a significant body of work there. And uh, I, I do hope
3: people start to discover it now. I was always kind of bummed the week after uh, tearing up the Pope's picture on uh, SNL. The following week's host was Joe Pesci, who I also love. But, you know, Pesci walks on stage with the picture taped back together. And that's how he made his statement. Um, mm. And Madonna went after her and attacked her, you know, for what she did. And it's like it's not being anti-Catholic. It's literally being anti-covering up child rape. She was exactly never anti-Catholic yeah. in the slightest. Yeah. And boy, was she
7: ahead of the curve on that, huh? I mean, my God, a few years later, we're all talking about it, right? And was there ever any vindication for
3: her along those lines? I mean, beyond just fans like you and other people. No, I mean, yeah, there was vindication. Uh, the, the, the church has come clean. The church has been devastated by the revelations. They, they're, they're probably still covering up a lot, but my God, I mean, a movie about it won Best Picture. I mean, the, you know, Sinead O'Connor was oh, yeah, called yeah. Lunatics Shouting into the Wilderness about child ra- systemic child rape and the Roman, maybe here and there, but systemic. And now we know it has been thousands, thousands of children abused by these men entrusted to their care yeah and and that's what i meant by vindication
7: was vindication for her personally for what she did and how she was treated as a consequence of that saturday night live appearance i mean obviously the facts are entirely vindicated we we know this a thousand times over more than a thousand times over but as far as her take on that being way ahead of her time uh as far as her view on the catholic church that uh I wonder if she ever felt uh, that uh, I wonder if she ever felt like the public had turned around and said, oh, we're sorry for this. We're sorry for turning you into
3: a punchline. We're sorry for all of it. And I don't know if that ever happened well she kept doing live shows you know she was always yep. very upfront that's how she was gonna make money by doing live shows and I saw her do shows in big rooms and small rooms and the crowds always loved her so she knew she had her fan base but I, yep. I don't think that was enough to give her comfort with all the struggle and loss she had and speaking yep. of struggle and loss he said artfully segueing let's talk about <laughs> Donald Trump can we please because um, yes okay October 2nd is the Trump civil fraud suit Uh, January 15th is the Eugene Carroll defamation suit. January 29th is the pyramid scheme class action suit. Uh, March 5th is a New York state criminal hush money suit. And May 20th begins the classified documents suit. Bob Seska, that's five different criminal trials Donald Trump has before the Republican convention next summer. And it looks like it's going to be more like seven. What can you tell us about what we know about the impending indictments for January 6th? Well, okay, well that I you know get to that
7: in a second. But the pyramid yeah. scheme thing, that that's uh, relatively new to me. What is the pyramid scheme class action lawsuit? Let's talk about that for a second because yeah. I'm, I'm I'm blanking on what that is exactly and a lot to be I should of. be up to speed yeah there's a lot of track I, I used to have a whiteboard in here keeping track of Russian names and Donald <laughs> Trump scandals and uh, I don't know what happened to it but this is yeah, what is that this a is a lawsuit that, that
3: was filed uh, about seven years ago it's a federal lawsuit accusing Trump and his family of promoting a a, a pyramid scheme um oh, and okay. the trial date was supposed to be uh in January of 2024 it it might be I think it's still supposed to be in 2024 but this was first filed in 20- 2018, and it alleges that the Trump Corporation, not the Trump Organization, which paid a million plus in fines this year, not the Trump University, which paid 26 million in fines, not the Trump Foundation, which paid uh, 2 million in fines, this is the Trump Corporation. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. that have promoted this multi-level marketing scheme uh, through the company ACN Opportunity, which um, operates under the name American Communications Network and they're suing under a class action suit. Uh, they said Trump should be liable for lending his and his family's names to a pyramid scheme through endorsements on Celebrity Apprentice. It is by far the most <laughs> oh, deadly, okay. but now, it's still another federal... Do you remember that one now? There's so many. Yeah, I know. No, it's ringing a bell. I, yeah. I, I need an abacus and a conversion chart for all of these, but my point is <laughs> five of them, uh, we may know by the end of this week about number Six, And we may know by the beginning of next week, that's August, about number seven. Uh, it seems like yeah. we'll hear about we'll hear about January 6th first, I think. Yes, I'm going to go way out on a limb and
7: say, let's see, uh, we're going to ra- wrap up the recording of my podcast tomorrow at about 3 p.m. So the indictments will be handed down at about p.m. (laughs) Right after we're finished recording, which is—I mean—it's honestly been the trend throughout this entire process. I know it's become like a joke on Twitter, like or whatever the hell we're calling that website now. Gee, Uh, Bob,
3: I'm sorry you're not lucky enough to do your job from 9 p.m. to midnight when everything's fresh. But yeah, go on. (laughs) That's right. That's right. We did talk about this last week, but uh, yeah, this is going to be significant, and
7: and one of the reasons it's uh, it's significant is. I think this particular trial, and I don't want to put the cart ahead of the horse here. I mean, there may not be indictments, but there probably will be. And if there are, there's a significant chance that this particular trial for January 6th and all the accompanying charges uh, will happen before the documents trial in Florida. And I wonder if that was always kind of uh, predicted or planned for by Jack Smith. Mm. I don't want to attribute too, too many wizard-like traits to Jack Smith. We did that with Robert Mueller, and we kind of got burned I on know. that. But No, um, no, I'm
3: sorry. Can I, can I push back against that narrative? Robert Mueller okay, sure. delivered 10 counts of obstruction oh, of yeah, justice yeah. to a Democratic Congress that said, meh, nah, and didn't pursue any of it. So uh, but, but I, I got to, you know, because the Robert Mueller thing wasn't a nothing burger. There really was something. There just wasn't a will to do anything about it. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Please continue.
7: Well, there was a lot of speculation about Robert Mueller, that there was going to be many more things stacked onto the pile. And obviously we got what we got and it was significant. But throughout the process of the Mueller investigation, there was all kinds of speculation about, uh, you know, uh, the superpowers that Robert Mueller had that he didn't really have. He kind of stuck to the straight and narrow as far as the scope of the investigation. But uh, with Jack Smith, I think it's significantly different. The other... The other case that we're looking at that I think is significant, and for one particular reason, is the Fonnie Willis charges, which may come down first two weeks of August. What makes that significant is the usage of the phrase election fraud. Mm. That is pretty damn big because election fraud, I think this is the first time we've seen... These particular crimes, the big lie crimes, whether from starting on Election Day 2020 on through January 6th and continuing on through today, if you include all the propaganda with it. Yeah. Election fraud has never really been the term that people have used to describe what Donald Trump and his henchmen were up to. And I'm so glad that it's now in the works and as a possibility, at least according to Hugo Lowell from The Guardian, that election fraud is going to be. The basis of several charges, if, in fact, we see those charges against Donald Trump. And
3: by by election fraud, you mean exactly what he's on tape uh, pushing the Florida secretary of state who's a Republican to commit, right? Yes, exactly right. So he's soliciting election fraud as
7: well as committing it himself. And so we're going into a presidential election with the very real possibility of having a Republican nominee who is on trial for election fraud. Oh. in the context of running in a presidential election himself. Oh. And, and sorry, the thing I'm
3: sorry. That it, yeah. <sighs> so it's kind of it's kind of hot when you say it that way. Go on, please.
7: <laughs> yeah, I was trying to interpret that noise you yeah. were making. I was like, well, sorry, that could be good continue, or
3: yeah, no, i Yeah, I've, I've composed myself. Go ahead, sir. Okay, good. I apologize. Um, that was to- totally inappropriate of to me. Continue with, with what he's facing, <laughs> please.
7: Um, So yeah, you know what? I forgot where where I was going with this because of the so charges distracted he's facing, the charges
3: he's the charges he's facing for January sixth for election oh, fraud yeah, yeah. that are imminent coming. Please and oh yeah, just yes, what you yes, were saying course. it. Yeah, please.
7: Right. Plus racketeering charges are going to be handed down by Fonny Willis, and and one of the <sighs> things that makes me. Oh, there you go again. It's great. So think it's about beautiful. baseball, John. Just think baseball scores. No, so, this is pouring for the Angels. This is pouring for the <laughs> Angels, Bob. Um, I'll
3: stop. Go ahead.
7: <laughs> well, so the, and then there are the racketeering charges. And the thing with the Funny Willis investigation that, and tr- try to hold it together on this one, John. Uh, the thing with Funny Willis is none of those crimes can be pardoned, it just can't happen. And not even a Republican governor of Georgia can pardon Donald Trump for those crimes. From what I understand, there is no uh, public official who can pardon Donald Trump for the
3: potential Fonnie Willis charges, provided that Donald
7: Trump is, yeah. Provided yeah, that he is States.
3: convicted and so on. Yeah. That's, that's right. So, so where do you fit Giuliani into this? Because I've been saying for years, Bob, it's not over until Giuliani and Trump turn on each other. I'm not popping my popcorn. Today, in a court filing, he conceded that what he said in Georgia was a lie. Shea Moss and her yeah. mother, Ruby Freeman, have had... A horrific harassment since uh, since Giuliani said they counted extra votes for the 2020 presidential election. And today he more or less said um, his admission won't affect his argument. He said his statements were constitutionally protected and they didn't mm-hmm. cause the plaintiffs any damages. But he, he he did not contest that to the extent the statements were st- statements of fact and otherwise actionable. Such actionable factual statements were false. He admitted yeah. he lied in the Georgia case today
7: right and the interesting thing that came out of that news was his one of his lawyers said that they're admitting to the lie for litigation purposes only which indicates to me that rudy giuliani is just publicly going to continue to uh uh, smear these people uh, in the meantime and uh you know again i'm not a lawyer i don't know exactly what that means for litigation purposes only admitting to the lie, maybe it's a negotiation tag. I don't know what it is, but they're they're admitting that Rudy Giuliani lied. And so, but at the same time, it's possible that he could continue to uh, smear people or continue to spread, maybe not by name, but some of the things that he suggests they were up to uh, around, but publicly speaking, maybe on his, is he still doing his podcast? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but he's, suffice to say, It's entirely possible that Rudy Giuliani will continue to say these things. And once again, we're seeing, though, the duplicity of this entire cabal where and we've seen this writ large with Fox News Channel, where they're saying one thing privately and another thing publicly. And so uh,
3: finally, there's some accountability for Rudy in this particular lawsuit. So that's good news. Uh, Let's hope so. And um, let's keep the accountability thing going, because uh, Ron DeSantis came out and said, hey, slavery had so many, so many good aspects to it. I mean, the Board of Education did, but he backed it up. And I thought, wow, he actually said slavery had its benefits because of blacksmiths. No one can say something more offensive than that. And then Greg Gutfeld said, uh, hold my Nazi beer stein. Um, Listen, I've known Gutfeld for 20 years. Even I'm shocked that he's talking about all the skills Jews learned in concentration camps. I don't think he was making a joke.
7: No, but I mean, isn't it valuable to know how to dig a mass grave or a, a well-constructed latrine ditch? I mean, isn't oh, that yeah. something that you know? There are a lot of oh, Jews people, who survived you, the Holocaust. You so send like, your resume out to... from
3: yeah. Send your resume out from yeah. Auschwitz and you know try to get promoted to Buchenwald. I mean, it's just right. I'm I, I'm just but there's no accountability for these people, Mr. Seska. Is there?
7: No, there's not. And, and one of the most horrendous aspects of what Greg Gutfeld was saying in the context of also saying that enslaved people were also learning valuable skills is that the sign at the, the gate for many concentration camps, Nazi uh, uh, work camps, was you know, translated from German, work makes you free. Yeah. And that's the first thing I thought of when Greg Gutfeld said that. Obviously, it was a sinister bit of propaganda that the Jews who were taken to these concentration camps were seeing on a regular basis, at least as they entered. Right. And, uh, and to extrapolate that into, yeah, well, you know what, work did kind of make
3: them free because they, they had to be useful in order to survive. I mean, well, yeah, can you imagine they, if a black if a black God. woman said this, sa- if a black woman said the same exact thing on MSNBC, we yeah. wouldn't be having this conversation because she would have been fired already. The sponsors mm-hmm. alone would have left in droves. I mean, I think the burden is on the sponsors of Greg's show to do something about this, because God knows the network's not going to care and the viewers aren't going to care either. Yeah, that's ultimately what it comes down to. But then uh, we learn that uh,
7: and this is something we've known for some time now. A lot of what Fox News Fox News makes in terms of revenue comes from the cable providers and not just from advertisers as well. Right. So, just simply going after the advertisers is not enough. You have to start going after you know some of the providers who are carrying fox news and paying fox news out yeah. of everyone's premium fees and so that's a, a another angle that can be taken there beyond that i don't know what the hell you do about fox news i mean there are so many issues that surround that entire question Uh, even into what do we do about all these people who believe that, uh, uh, Satan worshiping Democrats are drinking adrenochrome and and comic ping pong. I mean, this is just, uh, the list is
3: long (laughs) and and exhausting, but you're right, sir. (laughs) And before I let you go, Bob, we're hitting a break in a minute, but, um, I got to tell you of all the sad news today, nothing is, uh, as threatening to the good humor of a nation. than the word that you and Mary Trump are suspending the star Trek politics podcast until the strikes over. Really?
7: yes yes we thought we could maybe stick it out and talk about strike based issues on the show but it's a Star Trek podcast John and <laughs> what, we, there were a couple things that that happened one um SAG after released uh, guidelines and FAQ and so on about what's permitted and what's not permitted there was some gray area in there and so what we're doing is airing on the side of caution we'd rather support our friends in the acting and writing community than to try to navigate this somehow um yeah. and it's just it's just no fun if we're sitting there talking about the strike the whole time and why would anyone dial up a star trek podcast to learn about strike news there are better sources for that
3: sort of thing. I, mean, and so, I think you're talking about previous episodes of Star Trek going back in previous shows and how they're politically relevant to what's going on now. But I deeply because yeah. I like the podcast so much, but I deeply respect that you and Mary are doing this and it draws more attention to what the strikers are fighting for.
7: Yeah, we just started the show. I mean, I think we're 6 shows in and so in that regard it is a little awkward and I feel bad for the people who have kind of started to incorporate it into their daily or into their schedules and yes, and sir. listen to the show and support the show and and I feel bad for those people. But at the same time, I think it's more important for us to uh, stand in solidarity with the uh, striking actors and writers, because, you know, it's not just about what goes on in Hollywood. It's not just about making sure they're paid fairly, that they uh, have some sort of residuals from streaming. There's the bigger issue of AI. And I hope that out of this strike, we see some more uh, uh, broadly reaching regulations against AI so that we can reap the benefits of it, because there will be many benefits of it while kind of trimming away, weeding out the negative things, which obviously are going to affect a lot of artists. And that's uh,
2: tragic.
3: Amen. Bob, thank you. What is the best way for our listeners to keep up with your work, Mr. Seska?
7: Okay, uh, bobseskashow.com. That's my Patreon page for my podcast there.
3: You can listen to the show for free too. So uh, join me there. So good to see you, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us. We got to hit a break. We'll be right back with your calls at 866 997 4748.
8: Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at Squeezed.com. I normally
9: find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again.
1: freaker or wherever you get your podcast on because you know i love it when you do
3: this is siriusxm progress welcome to it i'm john fuglesang you're listening to channel 127 and we are at 866-997 grit all the way until midnight on the east coast 9 p.m on the pacific now yesterday as you might know a federal court blocked the Biden administration's temporary restrictions on migrants seeking legal asylum here in the U.S. What do these restrictions on migrants seeking asylum mean? Well, I'm so pleased to welcome back one of our favorite guests, Gina Kraus vilmar president and CEO of Upwardly Global and an expert on refugee and asylum issues. She put out a statement yesterday for Upwardly Global, saying, Seeking asylum is a right enshrined in not just international law, but U.S. law as well. We are glad that a federal court recognizes this and struck down this harmful and dangerous policy. The focus of this administration should be refunding and equipping the asylum system to process newcomers entering the country. Families across America are raising their hands to take in asylum seekers, and our processing system should reflect that. It's a great pleasure to welcome the president and CEO of Upwardly Global, which is a great organization working to support immigrants and refugees with international credentials to restart their careers in the U.S. Gina Kraus Wilmar, welcome back.
10: Hi, John. Nice to be Hi.
3: back. Nice to have you. The last time you were here, we were talking about how Afghan refugees were getting a new start here in the U.S., how a lot of Afghan women were getting a new start here and all the positives and yet all the struggles still ahead of us um there's a lot here to unpack and there's a lot of politics here to unpack and there's something in this story to make everyone uncomfortable isn't there
10: (laughs) i think that's a good summary um i think if we take a a step back into memory lane uh, we will remember that you know under the trump administration they had evoked title 42 which allows them basically to deny people access into the united states either seeking asylum or seeking another reason to come in because of um, health reasons. Yes. And so that was something that was enacted during COVID. And what ended up happening is is that 1.9 million um, expulsions happened at the southern border during that time period. Now, the hope was under the Biden administration that that would be overturned. And in effect, the Biden administration let it run its course and run out until two years into their tenure. That's right. And um, that also meant that, you know, we had a report out from Human Rights First, which is a partner of ours that said they had identified three 13,500 cases of individuals sitting on the Mexican border waiting to legally enter into the United States through a port of entry and have experienced torture, kidnapping, rape, and other violent attacks. So it is not a comfortable place to be sitting on the Mexican border for an indefinite amount of time waiting to get your fair shot. Um, And so eventually the Title 42 expired, but what ended up happening is the administration then enacted a new policy which had the same effect as Title Mm -hmm. 42, which was how do you reduce the number of migrants crossing into the southwest border? And they did that by saying, okay, well, if you're trying to seek asylum here, you can only do it through an app, which we have set up called the CBP app, which by the way, at this stage only allows for 200 slots a day. So you've got tens of thousands of people relying on a lottery based system to be able to get into a queue in order to get a slot to meet with an asylum officer. Right. And I often think about like if I had to rely on Uber as an app in order to get like 200 of those slots in order to get to safety Yeah. and competing with another 10,000 people. That would be a terrifying prospect.
3: We're talking about tens um, of thousands of people, tens of thousands of souls waiting in Mexico to apply for asylum legally. And I'm like, where do they get to charge their phones to check the app 10 times a day? It's, And I just want to say, you mentioned Title 42. The world was watching with bated breath when Title 42 expired because our Republican friends were dancing in the streets saying there was going to be an invasion, their favorite word, of migrants across the border. And, of course, as you pointed out, the Biden White House found a way to put the kibosh on it. And it's interesting. It seems like the Trump administration did it because they're xenophobic racists. And the Biden administration pretty much did exactly what Trump did because... They're not xenophobic racists, but they don't want to get beaten up by xenophobic racists in an election year. It seems that the politics is guiding everything here with all these souls lost in the balance. And these are legal asylum seekers. I'm, I'm so sorry to, to jump in, but we, we covered it a lot on this show and they predicted there would be a huge influx. But instead, we just reported that uh, it's the lowest border crossings in two years. It's because of this Biden administration policy that's just been struck down. Yeah,
10: this is purely political. Um, And they wanted to, you know, get rid of the optics of people coming into the southern border. They wanted to decrease the number of people that were being relocated from Texas to California to New York. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this was a this was a political game that they're playing. I think it's now evident because we had the court that struck this down that basically said, actually, you can seek asylum no matter how you come into the United States. Um, It is your right, not not just under international law, it's your right under U.S. law, U.S. law that we established in the 1980s a long time ago that allows anybody who is at fear of persecution or experiencing persecution because of their social identity, whether it's ethnic, whether it's racial, whether it's political, to be able to seek safety in the United States. And so um, I think it's a positive that this was overturned. I think the fact that the Biden administration has is appealed this um, is just trying to a stalling tactic yeah. uh, for them to get their ducks in a row because they exactly. don't have an alternative plan at the moment. And what we are going to end up happening is we're going to start seeing that flow of individuals trying to come in legally. And so yeah. one of the things I take point with is, is when you read the, the press today, whether it's CBS or CNN, Everybody is saying, well, you know, the Biden administration, they had this policy in place and it really helped deter illegal um, migration. But the reality is, yeah. these people are trying to come through a legal port of entry. They're not being smuggled in. They're trying to come through a legal port of entry. And they're trying to do it by getting on this app um, in order to get a slot. So that's not Illegal migration. That is people trying to exercise their legal right to access um, asylum in the United States. And so I think that's one thing people need to realize. But I think the, the other thing is is that, um, you know, part of this policy mess is because only Congress can reform immigration policy. And so you have the Biden administration trying to solve for this. And this is a two pronged approach. You've got Please. the asylum ban on one hand, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of the the stick. And then you've got opening up legal pathways, which is the carrot. And I would say, actually, I'm very excited about what the Biden administration is trying to do in terms of trying to open up more legal pathways for people to seek economic opportunity in the United yes. States to be able to reunify with family. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the, the labor dynamics here. I mean, we've got for every job opening, we've got less than one person that's unemployed. So for every unemployed person, we have one and a half job openings. We do not have enough people. 83% of growth in our workforce today comes from immigrants and the children of immigrants. They make up 18% of our workforce already. And with 10,000 baby boomers retiring a day, and the fact that we're an aging population means that immigrants are going to be the future of our workforce. But frankly, we have huge pain points right now. We have pain points in farming, the agriculture industry. We have pain points in the trucking industry. We have pain points in software development. We have pain points across all skill levels. And the fact that we don't have immigration policy that is solving for this, and instead we're slamming the door in people's faces from their legal right to seek safety in the United States, Um, In order for it to be good political optics while behind the scenes, we're trying to solve for it way in Latin America. So way out of the limelight. Right. Which is we've opened up safety mobility offices. This administration has opened up safety mobility offices in Guatemala and Costa Rica to start with. They've gotten um, many other countries to agree to open up these offices. And what they're saying is, is don't come to the southern border. Come here to Guatemala or Costa Mm -hmm. Rica or Ecuador and we will process you and they're making huge commitments. You know, on average, it takes four years for someone's asylum claim to be processed. That's an insane amount of time. For a refugee, it takes on average two years to be processed. Mm -hmm. And they're making a commitment to process people within three to six months. So not only are they saying, hey, come here and we'll process you, we're making a commitment to process 30,000 people a month and we'll expedite that processing, which is huge in terms of reform of how we actually work the system. At the same time, they're saying, but don't come through the southern border, because if you do, you will be penalized. And so what this um,
3: and that's this and that's because judge, I, I, I'm so sorry, but they'll be penalized because coming through the southern border makes us look bad because that's what they beat us up for. That's the only reason, right? It's my understanding that international law requires America to allow any point of entry to be an appropriate place for asylees to enter. Is that correct? The the international law says, no, it's not cheating. They can cross the border and claim asylum.
10: Yeah, they, they can also cross the border as a tourist. You know, we have asylum seekers who come in, they fly in from Saudi Arabia or they fly in from other countries. On a tourist visa, and then they claim asylum when they're here, because that was their only way to get into the United States. That's the plot of Moscow on the Hudson
3: with Robin Williams, literally. Yeah, a a tourist (laughs) did it. You're right.
10: But you can seek asylum at any time, at anywhere within the United States. And so, yes, it's for political reasons. So they have this solution on the one side, but now they don't have that solution. They're not able to run it. They're still in the process of building it. So now they're looking for a tactic to stall this decision so that it gives them more running time to set this up. I think the real challenge is going to be. Migrants don't know that they should be going to a safety mobility office. They're going to come to the border and they're still going to be looking to come into the United States. So in reality, we still have to solve for how are we processing people on the southern border? And I will say this. Americans are raising their hands. There are 3 million Americans who have raised their hands to say, we want to sponsor an asylum-seeking family. There are 250,000 of them who have already finished and completed the paperwork to do so. And so what we need to see is really an effort to say, okay, we've got asylum seekers coming in through the border. We're processing them and they're getting passed because they have legitimate claims. Mm -hmm. Now, let's make sure we're matching them up with families that want to host these, individ- these families so that we're actually setting people up for success. And I don't see that kind of effort of coordination and connecting the dots from this administration to really make sure we're leveraging the goodwill of the American public.
3: So let's talk about what's going to happen in the next two weeks, because tens of thousands of these folks have been waiting in Mexico and other countries in Central America for their number to get called, to find out what their status is going to be. And now, as you pointed out, they no longer have to apply via the the safe mobility offices. Um, and they're not going to get turned away or deported without being screened for their asylum claim, something our racist still can't understand. So uh, I guess, how does this affect the screaming headlines on Fox News? Because I don't know if you know, inflation's down, Hunter Biden wants to plead guilty. Um, They they don't really have a lot right now. Should we start to expect hearing hysterical screeching about there's about to be another surge of migrants or asylum seekers at our southern border?
10: There's not going to be another surge. And the only reason there's not going to be another surge is for two reasons. One Please. is is because you still have to apply through the CBP One app, so you're still playing lottery with people's lives by having them find a slot on that app each day. Right. So that's going to control the number of people that are being seen. The second is because um, you know the Biden administration has increased funding to double the number of asylum officers. But this is the that's hard right. part. If you've got asylum officers. Um, in the the safety mobility offices and you've got seven of those in Latin America and they're staffing that and then they're also supposed to be staffing on the southern border and they're also supposed to be staffing for the Um, 1.6 million asylum seeking claim backlog you don't have enough people so even with the doubled investment in asylum officers um There's just too many asylum claims. And so what you're going to see is is people who have already applied for asylum legally in the United States. Their asylum claims are going to continue to go from four years on average to five or six years on average from being reviewed, which is really painful. You can't leave the country. Um, We have a, a colleague at Upwardly Global who's an Afghan asylee, and her mother was evacuated to Canada, and she can't cross the Canadian border to see her mom. Wow. Um, and she might not be able to for up to five years, and and that's a terrifying prospect. So, being a waiting for your asylum claim to be processed is is, is not a fun business.
8: No. Um, <laughs>
10: the, so you've got limited asylum-seeking officers, and then you've got a trickle coming in because of the CBP One app. So anybody who says a surge is really just trying to paint a dramatic picture. Anybody who says it's going to increase illegal migration has really not understood that the reason why the number of migrants crossing the U.S. border has trickled is because of the fact that these people are trying to get into a legal port of entry.
3: So these people now, it's going to go back to the way it used to be. They can't be turned away or deported without being screened for their claims of asylum. So they're just the main difference is They're not going to be on the other side of the Mexican border, sitting around in refugee camps, waiting for an app to work. They're going to get to come here and stay here while their cases go through all the courts. What's that going to mean for the overcrowding at the southern border? We've been spending a lot of time focusing on the human rights atrocities of Greg Abbott in the last two weeks.
10: It will remain. So, you know, we're going to see maybe three to 500 people processed a day. You've got tens of thousands of people on the Mexican border. That's going to yeah. take some time for that to be processed. And in the meantime, you're going to see more and more people come. Um, and so that's just going to replace the folks that are coming through. So we're not going to see, unfortunately, those atrocities change, which is the sad part. Um, what we are going to see, though, is, is people when people do come in, we're going to have the same situation of, people needing to find somewhere to sleep, and nonprofits and community-based organizations um, bearing the brunt of that opportunity. Um, but the good news is is they have the infrastructure, they know how to do this, they've already done this um, earlier this year. And and then the hope is, is we don't see these continued political games from the state of Texas or the state of Florida where they're shipping people off to blue states.
3: So here's my other question, then. What does this mean for all the folks who are trying to apply for asylum from from Syria, from Afghanistan, as we talked about the last time, from Ukraine? I mean, will this result in longer wait times for these other poor suffering folks and their families trying to gain asylum?
10: I think we're really worried about that. I think we're worried about the equity issue around who's who gets to seek asylum in the United States because of processing Um, I think that's the same for refugees because we're actually increasing the number of refugees we're processing from Latin America, which is a good thing, but that also means that those numbers then are taken away from other regions in the world. Um, We haven't seen the same kind of emphasis on helping um, support Sudanese uh, in in the same way we supported Ukrainians or we're supporting those coming from Latin America, which I think is also worrying. Um, And so I do think it's going to impact numbers. I think the administration... Knows that a lot of immigrant advocates are advocating hard that it might not, not be the case. They're aware of that. But I just don't see how the numbers work.
3: I know. The Republican Party will use this to beat up on the Democrats any way they can. It's going to be all manner of racism. It's going to be all manner of calling these Christian refugees, which is what they are. It's going to be calling them illegals. And we know that no matter what Biden does, people who don't care about the border and don't care about these refugees will exploit them and use them to hurt people with empathy and to hurt this administration the the you know you get it the the people who think Donald Trump's a good person will love this because it will allow them to be incredibly shitty but is it true that uh, polling data shows a majority of Americans are right now supporting access to asylum at the southern border
10: yeah well 60% of Americans are supporting um which is 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 pretty significant i mean i think generally Um, it's a bipartisan issue in terms of uh, people seeking safety. I think the challenge is we have to remind people that these people are seeking safety. Nobody picks up and gives up their entire lifestyle, their entire living, their home without a really good reason. And um, so I think that's what we have to remind people. I think we also have to demyth the fact that, you know, 63% of asylum cases are approved Um, affirmative asylum cases because the majority of people who are coming in to seek asylum are legitimately coming in to seek asylum. Um, So I think there are a bunch of narratives we're going to have to counteract. Um, But I would have to say, you know, I go back to those 3 million people in the United States who have raised their hands to open up their homes. Um, And so I think that's incredibly impressive. I think now it's just a question of how are we connecting these dots?
3: Well, can I ask you to connect a couple more dots for me? Because this might not be your area of expertise, but I'm dying for your opinion of it. Um, we keep hearing about these Central America asylum seekers from Honduras and El Salvador. And I've, I've been to both those countries. I first went to those countries um, as a comedian to do stand-up for the U.S. troops that are stationed there. Because we have military bases in Honduras and El Salvador right now. And when I got there, I figured out why. Because our drug war is still very much in progress in El Salvador and Honduras. Um, in uh, El Salvador, the troops I performed for weren't allowed to be in uniform when they left their base. So these people are fleeing, in many cases, the violence that is wrought by our own drug prohibition. Maybe I'm deeply naive. Well, I know I'm deeply naive, but it seems like this is one of the strongest areas we've ever seen to argue for decriminalization legalization and regulation of drugs take the profit motive out for the gangs if you don't like seeing these people fleeing violence from our drug war can't we talk about just stopping our drug war
10: you know it's so interesting that you say that because i think there there is more of a push now to say okay if we don't want this number of asylum seekers in the united states how do we start addressing some of the issues in these countries and The drug war is not on that conversation docket at all. Um, So I think it's a really interesting point.
3: Yeah, that's just me. I think about these things too much. So I guess the million dollar question is, (laughs) if you were advising the Biden administration on how to handle this situation with humanity and yet still not get your butt kicked in an election by these xenophobic racists, what advice would you give this White House?
10: So I'd say first, you've got to get these people housing. So you've got to get them to places where they can actually access housing because we can't have the image of these individuals living on the streets and being homeless, which creates a perception that they're um, dependent on the welfare state. I think the second is, is uh, we've got to decrease the amount of time it takes for somebody to get processed. And, And really, and just to sort of say, like, you know, you're you're allowed to be asylum seeker and now we're processing your claim but it takes five months before you can apply for a work permit so the way it works is you first come in you apply to seek asylum you get an interview that person says okay you have um, a legitimate claim then you complete the paperwork preferably with legal counsel because it significantly increases your odds of, of actually applying correctly and then and then you wait and right. they say, okay, you're asylum seeker. Uh, you're, you know, you're an asylee. You're waiting to become an an asylum seeker. So let's in five months you can apply for a work permit. That's too long. Yeah. Um, I don't know how anybody lives for six months without working. So
3: I don't understand. Um, it.
10: I think I'd recommend that they they decrease that amount of time so people can start working, and then I think you know they start making real linkages with employers that are desperate for talent. And and I just want to say we're talking about all skill levels, okay? So people coming from Venezuela have multiple skill levels. We've helped place 200 asylum seekers last year, earning $67,000 a year. The biggest industries they're working in are business logistics and operations, technology and healthcare. So they are legitimately a group of people that could be helping support our economy in multiple ways. And I think the answer is, is we need the help. So the economy can sustain it. (laughs) And if we can demonstrate that they're um, supporting the economy as well as thriving, then I think it takes away some of the political back and forth with the Republicans, um, because nobody's stealing anybody's job at this point.
3: So what's the best way for our listeners to keep up with you and all of the work that Upwardly Global is doing right now?
10: So you should go to upwardlyglobal.com and connect with us on either Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or however you want to get your news.
3: Gina Cross Milmar, it's always an honor. Anytime we can get you on the show, please come back more often. This situation is not going to go away. And I'm so grateful for your clarity and compassion on this issue. You really have a very artful way of calling out this administration because you want to help them in the long term. And it's very rare to see. Thank you for everything you do.
10: Such a pleasure. Thank you.
3: Thank you. We'll hope to see you very soon. And we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back, and it's going to be nothing but your calls from now until midnight on the East Coast, 9 p.m. on the Pacific at 866-997-4748. We have to talk about migrants and Mitch McConnell. We have to talk about Rudy. We have to talk about the Hunter Biden case imploding. We have to talk about UFOs, and our government has dead alien bodies, and Mick Jagger's 80, and we lost Sinead. We have a lot of ground to cover. Join the conversation.
2: 866-997-4748. Call 866-997-4748. Tell me everything with John saying serious XM Progress 127.
1: To. Well, if we're t- gonna talk UFOs, you might as well go coast
3: to coast with it, baby. Oh, baby. I was gonna say. Welcome to the Art Bell Show. If you're calling from west of the Rockies. <laughs> it's 866-997-Grit. <laughs> Look, I mean, first off, we have to get up through the get through our, our our initials they no longer identify as UFOs they are now uaps um, unidentified aerial phenomena at least that's that's what I think the a stands for i've I've heard some conflicting reports on on that today but they're they're real we've been told today that they they are real uh, three military veterans testified under oath about this and you know, maybe it's alien technology. What if it's alien technology and another country figured out how to use it and harness it? Um, I mentioned before Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee, Republican. Um, here he is asking Commander David Fravor about retaliation against government employees and contractors, because a lot of people who work for our government and witness these objects don't want to come forward because they know what the stigmas like. What kind of abuse can they face? For their knowledge of uap programs do you have any personal knowledge of
2: people who've been harmed or injured in efforts to cover up or conceal these extraterrestrial technology
1: yes personally
2: have you heard have anyone been murdered that you would think that you know of or have heard of i guess
1: i have to be careful asking that question i directed people with that knowledge to the appropriate authorities
2: maybe in a um if we could get it get in a um confidential area of SCIF, we could talk about that, but unfortunately, um, we were denied access to the skiff, and that's very unfortunate in this, this scenario.
3: Now, again, David Grush, former U.S. intelligence officer, became a whistleblower after he worked with the Pentagon task force on UAPs or UFOs. He's the one who testified today the government has been working to conceal evidence of non-human aircraft, and they have an entire squad that goes around the country and around the world retrieving... Rex, where is the TV show about this? Um, Ryan Graves is a former Navy pilot, and he testified about UAPs that his crew began witnessing during training exercises in the year 2014. He's another whistleblower. Here is Mr. Graves impressing the need for truth and oversight about UAPs as a means of national security and defense.
6: I would also like to add from a commercial aviation and military aviation perspective, we deal with uncertainty in our operating space as a matter of uh, of our protection, professional actions. Identifying friend from foe is, is very important to us. Uh, and so when we have unidentified targets and we continue to ignore those due to a stigma or a fear of what it could be, that's an opening that our adversaries can take advantage of.
3: He also said if anyone could see the sensor and video data I witnessed, our national conversation would change. If UAP are foreign drones, it is an urgent national security problem. If it is something else, it is an issue for science. Dying to know your thoughts on this all night. We're at 866 997 4748. Also, talking about Rudy Giuliani and what happened to Mitch McConnell today. Mick Jagger's 80, and Sinead has left us. But, but one more thought on, on this business with the UFOs, because both parties had representatives using the hearing not to attack each other. I I thought I was watching, like, another country's parliament for a second. But they were both demanding greater transparency from the intelligence community. The Senate has added an amendment to the annual defense authorization bill that's going to require every government office to turn over all the records they have relating to UAPs so an independent panel will be able to decide if they should be declassified or not. I mean... They, they they questioned them specifically about UFOs and whether or not any man-made object could move in the ways in which these unidentified objects have been seen moving. All three of the witnesses, including David Fravor, the U.S. Navy commander, and former Navy pilot Ryan Graves, all said it's impossible. And when they asked further about whether the U.S. government's housing these aircraft, David Grush, former U.S. intelligence official, said under oath he knows of the exact locations where these aircraft are being housed. Here's National Security Spokesperson John Kirby. He was asked at the White House press briefing for his take on the House UAP hearings.
6: And then on this uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon hearing that's happening on Capitol Hill, uh, David Grush, who sat on a U.S. Air Force panel on UAPs, he says that he was informed of a UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program based on interviewing 40 witnesses over four years. Does such a program exist, and do you believe that the American people deserve to know if it does? I have no information on that uh, to provide for you today, one way or the other. I would just say what I said last week when I got asked about this. Uh, We obviously take um, the issue of uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon seriously. There's a whole office at the Pentagon that has stood up to analyze the data, collect reports collate those reports and forward them up appropriately. Uh, And that's, I think, testament to the fact that uh, that we know that uh, in some cases uh, these phenomena have impacted military training, have then impacted military readiness.
3: Do you believe? Do you want to believe? Have you had experiences before? Why do you think the government is rolling all this out now? I mean, really, what what are we meant to be distracted from? Or what are we being prepared for? It doesn't feel random to me. But again, you know, the question's going to be, is there... I mean, most of us believe that you can't be hubristic enough to think there's no life anywhere else in the universe. But is that life elsewhere evolved enough to travel light years across space to reach Earth? I mean, is it physically possible to travel such long distances during a species' lifetime or... Are these craft not from outer space? Are they somehow interdimensional? Are they somehow us from another time? I don't know. I'm a fan of the debate. I will say it's pretty uh, healthy. That The first sign of real democracy I've seen in our country all year is watching Democrats and Republicans getting together and holding these hearings. And seemingly, and I know this is shocking, no one seemed to hold this hearing to try to trash the other side. Like to see some more of this in our country. We want to know what you guys think, and we are having open phones for the rest of the hour at 866 997 grit. David in Santa Fe. Thank you for waiting on hold.
5: Excellent, John. Hey, I, uh, it always seems to boil down to the military. Are they the ultimate authority? I
3: guess. So, I mean, I don't know. If, I, I don't know if anybody on earth is yeah. an authority on this. I don't know if anybody on earth is an authority. No,
5: nobody's an authority, but I can uh, I can tell you a definite experience I had.
3: What was yours? When I lived
5: in Pakistan between 1963 and 68. In 1967, India and Pakistan were at war. Yes. Now, I was with my parents on a major construction project that was shared by India and Pakistan. So, But the whole country was blacked out. We had all of our residential places blacked out because we didn't want to get bombed. But okay. they had the dam project powerhouse dam tunnels all that all lit up bright in the middle okay. of remote northern pakistan so i got done uh, i was 17 at the time uh we did gig i'm a musician we did a gig that night we were up really late so about two three in the morning okay we walked up we walked up to the uh mark my brother and another guy in the band we're all in the band we walked up to the where the swimming pool was at the edge of the colony. What did you see? So we had a uh, wall. We had a wall all the way around our residential place. Okay, not was military. There? All construction. Uh, right on I'm the other you? side of the wall is a little Pakistani village called Baral Village.
3: And above it we in the sky. Up, mm-hmm.
5: We looked right above the village, and we were about a hundred and fifty feet away, no more than that. There was a craft hovering over the village. And it was completely silent. It was not fluorescent, more of an opaque green, almost a forest green color. And it was a cylindrical, looked like a fuselage of a plane, but it had no wings. So it was right above the village, and we were watching it for a few minutes. And then when it decided to leave, I think they were there looking at the dam project. What's this doing in the middle of nowhere up in northern Pakistan during a blackout? So when it left, it ascended into the sky. It didn't go into another dimension. It ascended in the sky in about four or five seconds. It was completely out of range. You couldn't see it. Wow. No more yeah. than four or five seconds. Wow. And those kind of craft have been described before. Cylindrical. Yeah. And, uh, and that green color, too. So, I mean, we were no more than 150 feet away from it. And it was clear. Clear as night. It was right
3: there. Incredible. Incredible.
5: What year was this? um,
3: What year was this? What year was this?
5: 1967, when uh, we had a whole blackout because of India and Pakistan bombing each other. But they didn't bomb the dam because India owned part of the share in that. It was a World Bank project.
3: Thank and, you uh, so much for the story. It's a, during that experience?
5: same during that same time period yeah. within a few days. I had one of those weird visitation
3: things. What's that? I woke
5: up. Well, I woke up on my bedroom floor. Okay. I don't sleep on the floor. <laughs> it's like I Okay. Was, I think it was one of those Whit, Whitney Stryber type of things because I, oh, I a see. few weird things happen like that. Gotcha
3: well I'm i 'm glad you 're okay I can't now cry. david i, I
5: can 't say that 's real or not, but I know that the craft was real
3: no, I believe you, I believe you I, I had an experience yep. a couple of, I had experience years ago in the Andes Mountains in Peru, completely sober where my brother and I he took me to the top of a mountain and I witnessed lights in the sky that changed color, shape, and speed, and direction in ways I cannot explain. I saw that I, I, like it 's a helicopter it 's a helicopter oh helicopters can 't do that so you know, and uh, over the years, I mean, I've, I've talked to many people who have had sightings. Shirley MacLaine, uh, I once had a conversation with her um, on the phone. She called me one time about politics and we talked and she told me a story that she was at a party in, in in Beverly Hills and Ronald and Nancy Reagan arrived late in the 60s. And that Ronald and Nancy Reagan swore that on Mulholland, they saw a UFO above L.A. And they could never tell anyone. But they told Shirley MacLaine, they swore it. Um, Uri Geller told me that John Lennon swore to him he saw an alien as well. Um, I have very different levels of respect for those two people, but when John Lennon and the Reagans both claim they saw something, look, it's getting harder and harder to call these people cranks, and the government has established, it really looks like we're not alone. Thank you so much for the call. 866-997-4748. Hey, Mike in Georgia, thank you so much for your patience on hold. You've been on hold forever. Thank you.
2: Oh, you're worth I'll let you handle the UFOs.
3: Uh, okay.
2: Break something I was talking about the other night, Please. about the two Stacey's in Cobb County. Yes, and how one of them had a video campaign video that was just very nice. While I was on hold, I looked it up in my laptop. It's not there, but when I looked it up on my smartphone, I went Stacey Evans, sixteen houses, and there it was. So if Somebody was trying to look it up on their laptop and were having problems. Try a different okay. device. And okay. I've got you another lady in Cobb County who's going to do something amazing. Who's that? We have um, County Commissioner Jerica Richardson, J-E-R-I-C-A, and they gerrymandered her a little bit. She's really good, which is why they're trying to get rid of her. And she's going to have to move out of her house and move into another place. If she wants to keep her job. So right now she's got a committee. What's it called? When you want to run for office and you start a
3: exploratory committee.
2: Thank you very much, sir. And no for running for Congress against Rich McCormick, who is on the wrong side of the abortion issue. Mm-hmm. So she's got a good chance.
3: Huh. Well, let us know how it evolves. I mean, you know, I I love talking about the two Stacys because they both showed different ways that you can take on the Trumpers. And, you know, Stacey Evans always said we have to convince these people that they've been lied to and that they've been defrauded. And Stacey Abrams said, no, we're not going to convince them of that. Let's get everybody who didn't vote last time to vote this time. Let's get people who've become citizens and turned 18 to vote because you're never going to get these people out of the cult. And you know what? I I respect both points of view. Uh, The voters went with Stacey Abrams. So I can't wait to see more about this new politician because, I listen, Georgia is becoming what Ohio is supposed to be. It is the swing state where these things are being fought out in real time, and it's amazing to see.
2: I like Stacey Abrams' tactics. I love Stacey Evans, but she was too much like Barack Obama, wanted to reach over and talk to the Republicans, the folks Whoa. in the middle, and Stacey Abrams said, you're not going to get one vote from them, why waste your time? Yeah. Uh, I get the argument. Jimmy, Carter, Jimmy Carter's grand nephew, I think it was Jason Carter for Jason Carter from a very liberal county was running mm-hmm. for I think it was governor. Okay. And he was reaching out to the NRA and was making concessions about guns in Georgia and somebody said you're not going to get an additional vote and you just cost yourself a whole lot of uh progressive and democratic votes which it turned out to be true yeah so that's I all i got you, but... from here other than i love Sinead o'connor
3: i love Sinead o'connor too and Sinead o'connor didn't care about how many votes she lost you know like she did what she thought was right she knew it was going to hurt her professionally and she made the choice that she did not care she said it it didn't hurt my career it hurt the career of people who wanted to buy a house in my record label i'm just going to keep on playing live and you know what she was proven right and I'm just so sorry she never got to have her victory tour. She never got to have her big comeback tour because she really deserved it. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate your call and your insights. 866-997-4748. I want to, I want to do a little bit more on on Hunter Biden, but good God, Charles in Miami, you've been on hold forever. Are you still awake? Have I lost you, sir? You've been so patient. <laughs>
11: Hello. Hello. Oh,
3: yeah. Hi. Oh, yeah. well,
11: good. Uh,
3: What's on your mind, well, sir? How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> <All> right, um, <laughs> Did I catch yeah, you at a I funny moment? That <laughs> what? What's uh, that? You, you.
11: So You made me laugh at that.
3: Okay. What's on your mind? How are you feeling? I'm glad you're having a good evening on a Wednesday.
11: Yes, 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 um, I am. Um, it sounds like glad it. I got a chance to talk to you because I think you're probably the only person that will listen anyway. Um, Why is that? <laughs> uh, 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 I just feel like that. But, uh, All right, but, lay it on uh, me. But, but, yeah, uh, the thing is, Ron DeSantis—you um, know this thing. I mean, this thing is
3: really funny, man. Which part? The, which, which part? Which part? Ron DeSantis is completely uh, imploding before our eyes, and it's—it's it's kind of beautiful. I—it's it, kind of—it's kind of a—it's it, kind of, uh, like this moral fantasia. I mean, he fired one third of his campaign staff yesterday. They're—they're they're rebooting so hard. I'm—I'm. I'm, you know what? I'm waiting. I'm waiting for someone to say, "Let's let Ron be Ron," because that's when you know it's in really bad shape. <laughs> Yeah, that's
11: funny, too. No, no, the, the thing about <laughs> slaves and skills, and and just hit me, so how come the, the next question after we got, um, you know, slaves um learned different skills was, even on the Sunday show, how come they didn't allow us to read? How so come they
3: didn't, they allow, didn't allow us to what, sir? I didn't I didn't hear you. They didn't allow us what? So
11: how, could, to, how come they didn't allow slaves to read? Ah. Oh. You know, if, if, if uh, you know, we were going to gain skills that were so beneficial. And yeah. These these people are just ridiculous.
3: And, well, I mean, do you really think, but do you really think they mean it? I mean, do you really think that Ron DeSantis means it? This is what you say to make racists feel safe with you. You you trivialize the horrors of slavery. You make it seem like it wasn't that horrible. Not because you're trying to appeal to the black vote. Quite the opposite. You're You're letting a certain kind of Caucasian know You're their boy when you say things like that. You can feel better about slavery because good things happen to them because they were human property. I mean, that's the sad. And I grew up around guys like that. I totally get what he's doing. And it's pathetic and amoral. And it ain't going to help him. But
11: this is what they've been doing ever since I was a little kid, even when I can remember far back. and, And just picking up bits and pieces. They always leave those breadcrumbs. For this yeah. type of person that's in their um, that's in their voter base, and basically, I think because those people are the most animated, and they got to get those extremists out, to they get the rest of the um, you know the, the the bandwagon to go along with them. And the, the saddest part about this, though, is I feel like mm, how can I say it? We've seen no. what happened. Uh, um, Okay, we saw what happened in World War Two. We were fighting Nazis, and we're, we have Nazis again in America, and they're, on the, and they're on the Republican side. They had to bomb them. The Allies had to bomb Germany, had to kill so many millions of Germans for them to capitulate, for them to give in. Yeah. And it seems like, is that what we're going to have to do to these people? I mean,
3: no. I'm not. We are not going to have gonna, to bomb I'm anybody. Not, so
11: wait a minute, wait a, wait a minute. I'm <laughs> just saying this. I Earthly, know. Rhetorically, dirty, like, right. this is what has to happen to this to this particular clan of people because they picked up the same symbol. They're Nazis yeah. all over the game. And You're think right. about it. They, they wanted to keep slaves so bad that these Americans, these Southern America, these Southern whites, they have their grandfathers, you know, who fought in those wars. Oh, yeah. Their they're, they're fingernails, their they're hair, their, their skin buried in this ground and they that's all right. died for nothing because guess what we prevailed and you know slavery was abolished and it seems like but
3: that's this, but but that's that's that that's the confederacy of today the the wealthy plantation owners they loved slavery so much these wealthy southerners that they were willing to send the poor white southerners to die so they could continue to enjoy their slaves and you know what the wealthy plantation owners are still getting the poor white Confederates to go out and fight their battles for them today. They, I mean, you can draw a straight line from the Confederacy to January 6th. It, it, it's what happens. I mean, bin Laden they, they did the same thing. I mean, terrorist charismatics will do this. You get someone else to go fight and die for you. We've seen it so many times how Bush, the aristocrat, millionaire at birth, got people to enlist and go to die in Iraq for nothing. And of course, how Trump the aristocrat millionaire at birth, got people to go beat the crap out of cops on the Capitol steps for his own lie. There's a direct line from the Confederacy to that because you can manipulate hard-working conservative white folks to degrade and humiliate themselves in so many ways if you make them think that you're the rich white person on their side. It's so weak and unmanly and pathetic, and it works.
11: And I got one more thing for you, John. Tell me, Charles. This is Tell biblical. Me, sir. This is biblical because huh. I know you're, you're, you're good in the person. Okay. Um, before the children... Children, of Israel. Before they got to the promised land, there was a certain tribe of people. I forgot who they ran across, and the Lord told them, "Do not make any type of peace or any type of um agreement with them." I can't say the word exactly. And okay. the children of Israel did not listen. And He said, "Because you have done this, there will be a thorn in your side." And I could swear, are these the union? Um, are these the people from the you know in this in this country? Is this the union? Making sides with the Confederate because they was they saw the black man in battle and they was they was afraid of what the black man could do and now is this a Confederate mm. years and years and years of thorn in their side?
3: Yeah, yeah, I get it, but you know, there's there's the Old Testament God. I mean, sorry, I I prefer the New Testament Jesus. Uh, y- you know, you, when you look at this Old Testament God, um, who I was raised to fear. Uh, He's angry a lot. Uh, You're an abomination, all mankind. He loves you, but he might send you to hell uh, where fire will burn you, even though you're a spirit and can't be hurt by fire. And he's all powerful, all knowing, uh, but he's very insecure and jealous and needs you to worship him. I'm a kid reading this. I'm like, that's not a God. That's an alcoholic dad. And the angry alcoholic step God is what a lot of people choose because the love and forgiveness and compassion of his son. Well, that's just a bit too hard for some people, you know?
11: Well, anyway, thank you very much for um, you, you know, sir. waiting to get my call and uh, taking my call tonight. Oh, yeah. come
3: on! You class up the joint. It's always a pleasure, Charles. I thank you so much, and I'm so grateful to hear from you. I hope you have a great evening. Stay, stay cool if you can. Thank you.